right, guys, another episode. I'm not sure which episode this is going to be because we're doing a lot of recording today. Yeah. And I'm not sure the order we're going to release everything in. Times are tough with this winter storm with work, hard to get together. So we're going to, we're going to do a bunch in yeah, one day. Crank them out. I did get a truck released since we talked last. I got a, I got a truck released out onto the road. He's going to load. He's loading in Montana in good faith that by the time he gets to Nebraska, it'll be open. So cross your fingers, everybody, that old, old Justin will make her through out there because <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. I just got back from Vegas. And I think I mentioned that a couple podcasts ago that we had a show in Vegas where we were, we were hired, Haley and I, to fly down to Vegas and kind of entertain a, a company. Basically, they were having a company party. Some of you guys might have heard of this outfit. They're called Frana. They're based out of Minneapolis. And anyway, they flew all their employees to Vegas. Hold on a second. Why would anyone have heard of Frana? Because I am going to assume that we have enough reach nowadays in the podcast that somebody out there listening is close in proximity to the Minneapolis area and has noticed the company out there floating around. What do they do? They do like big construction projects like bridges, big commercial multi-story buildings. Oh, so it's a construction company. Yes. Okay. They wanted someone to entertain their crew that would be kind of mm, construction-y. So I guess apparently I'm construction-y ish. So they said, come on out and entertain these people. So I think the village people, the construction guy from the village people probably would have been more fitting for construction-ish. <laughs> probably so. So so we go to Vegas and it was, it was a lot. That's all I'll say about the Vegas experience. It's just a lot of, just a lot. It's just a lot of stuff. It was during the rodeo week. There was a UFC fight and a big college basketball game all going on the same night as our show that we were doing this party. And it was, it was just kind of a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. But as we were there and, you know, doing the deal, walking around, you know, meeting people, They'd ask where we're from. Of course, we'd say Montana and had a lot of people, and I'm curious to get your reaction on this. I had a lot of people say, oh, I've been to Montana. And of course, being down home, I'm like, really? Maybe I probably know the people you came to see because you feel like, you know, everybody in Montana, right? So I said, where'd you go? And they're like, I've been to Bozeman. I've been to Kalispell and I've been to Whitefish. And I'm like, oh, okay. So. So you watch Yellowstone, <laughs> in other words. So, and the answer is usually yes. You, you go, oh, okay. So you've been, you know, and you don't really have the heart to tell them. You're like, you've been to the not really Montana parts of Montana. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, okay. That was probably the number one thing. And then the next question was always followed up with the Yellowstone thing. Yes, it was. Oh, we just love that. Is it like someone said, is Montana just like Yellowstone except for the killing? which I don't know anything about, but and the answer is exactly, exactly, exactly like Yellowstone to the T. You know, I've lived in, I've lived around the country a little bit in my life. I meet a lot of people that have a connection to Montana. Uh-huh. If you had to pick the one town in my one, this is one personal, one person's experience. There's one town that has come up more than any other that people have connection to is I've lived California, Tennessee, North Dakota, Texas, all these places I've lived, there's one town that I consistently have met people that have a connection to. Oh, Glasgow. Glasgow? Glasgow, Montana. Really? Which Glasgow isn't, I mean, you just drive east forever and then keep driving and you'll find Glasgow. <laughs> you run into it. I've, That's the spot. I, I can't believe how many people I've met that have had connection to Glasgow. <laughs> I've met more people out of Montana that had connection to Glasgow than people the I've people met in? in Montana that have connection to Glasgow. <laughs> that sounds about right. Because you never meet people from Glasgow, from Glasgow in right. Montana because it's, it's so far out of anywhere. <laughs> anyway, previous episode, we had Taylor Moyer and Chris Waddell on that were part of Dale Earnhardt's Juniors. Crew, yep. Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s crew. Yep. Taylor, crew chief, but he also has strong passion and interest in ranching. Yeah. So we wanted to get him on and talk a little bit more about that. So uh, Taylor, welcome back. Thank you guys for having me back. Yeah. Have you heard of Glasgow, Montana? I've not heard of Glasgow, Montana. Yeah. All right. Uh, how about this, Taylor? I'm going to give you one single guess what the mascot 
of the town of Glasgow is at the high school. They are called the Glasgow what? Gladiators. Ooh, close. You, you, you're overthinking you're it. You're overthinking it. What other town do you know named Glasgow? In what other country is there a town named Glasgow? Can I Google this? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> T-Dog. Chris, Chris, Chris will be very let down by your historical abilities at this moment. He talked Glass them up girl. really high last time, too. Yeah. yeah no, no. I'll give you a clue. If you were there, they'd be talking to you like this. So it's Glasgow, Ireland. Oh. <laughs> Scotties. No, that would be. The Glasgow Scotties. There's me four-leaf clover. This would be Ireland. You're here to visit me. These are more like our. We're from Glasgow, Scotland. The Scotties got it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like right. the little terrier dog. Yes. That, yes yeah, that's their that's mascot. The, the Scotties. Sorry, man. I feel, feel bad. You teed me up for failure. I'm so sorry. Hey, Taylor, have you seen Yellowstone? I have seen Yellowstone. Are you convinced that's what Montana's like? I am. I know better than to know that that's what Montana's like. <laughs> All right. Actually, to Taylor's credit, when he came up last June, he said, I need to just roughly know where not to go. He said, I don't want to go to, you know, those places that I mentioned earlier that are like just straight up. This is where everybody goes that comes to Montana. He's like, I want to go where no man hath gone. So, you know. We, we, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how we like to vaca vacation anyways, is try to just see what the locals actually do and see what the real culture is, not the tourist culture. But that's one of the reasons I hit you up. You know, we, we did want to see Glacier and we wanted to figure out, you know, get the stuff booked around Glacier to be able to get through there. But we stayed, you guys are in what, Fairfield? Yep. We stayed at that one ranch house after we left your place in, in Augusta, oh, well, yeah. between Augusta and Sims, just out there in the middle of nowhere, the Bloom Ranch. And that was one of my favorite. It was just, we had a ranch house that came with a ranch dog and they were like, here's a, I don't know, 10,000 acres drive around. Don't, don't run through any fences. <laughs> and then we went, and then we went through Augusta. We visited the annex that your dad had told us, you know, his sister maybe ran or something. And oh then, yeah. The manic story. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then. And then I thought the car was going to get blown over, you know, driving north up 89 all the way to St. Mary. We got fuel in Browning, which was a little touch and go, but we got made it to St. Mary for all the snow. And then, yeah, we made it through Glacier. Oh, that's right. It snowed. It was, you oh, were yeah. here in June and we got like this crazy snowstorm. Yeah. So I was there when everything was flooding and we, we like perfect, perfectly, we were going, we were headed north then west and the rain, which was snow at Glacier was headed south then east. And we went. We never got rained on. Our trip was never interrupted. It was perfect, but they, the going to the sun road wasn't open yet, but we went up as far as we could go that evening, which made nobody be at the park, which was awesome. And we, in June took pictures in the, I mean, just pounding and driving snow. Everybody thinks the pictures are fake, but it, it just made for a cool experience and cool story. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a Montana experience when you're getting just hammered with the blizzard in June. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that farmhouse you guys stayed at, that was, I'm going to say, probably within 15 miles of us. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be my guess. The, the cool thing about that, and I know we mentioned in the previous podcast, but I had gone to Ranching for Profit School down in Billings the week before. It was an Airbnb that the lady had kind of fallen out with Airbnb. And the week of, she texted me directly and was like, I'm having trouble with the website. Here's my number. I'll trust you to just leave cash on the counter when you leave. Awesome. So we strike up a conversation about why I'm even there. And she's like, oh, actually me and my husband. So we own that ranch, but then we, we own a small property right there in Sims. And they do a lots of like, they intensive graze a bunch of yearlings. She's like, if you can make it over, he'd love to show you that. So that was cool that they were in the same mindset that I was in. But then I'm sitting there in the little ranch house, the Bloom Ranch. And I look down and there's an original ranching for profit binder from 1978 with that her husband had been to and like all his notes. And it was the same. Yeah, I pulled it out and looked through it. It was the same <laughs> notebook really? that I was using. And I was like, man, if this, if this guy took it in 78 and they're still ranching and they own this place and, and they own a place in Sims under some pivot irrigation must work. So yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed that, that area of the country. The wind was a little much, but it was, it was very enjoyable. We talked about, Oh, it was a few podcasts ago, but rooster came on and talked about a road closure that he, when he was trucking, he drove around a road closed in Depuyer, Montana, 
which is on that highway 89 between where you stayed and Browning. And that was, that was that same road that rooster got, got stuck on in that road closure. And the wind there is, is pretty famous. <laughs> yeah. So we went, we went a lot of that's what's cool is we've been, I think, where did you, where's your, your dentist office at Luke? It's in Shoto. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we ate lunch in Shoto. So my guess is you went from Augusta to Shoto and then Browning. Yep. 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 So yeah, you, in fact, if you did that, you would have, you would have driven right by where my office is. That road goes right, right by it. That's the only stop sign on main street. Yeah. And I know right where that's at. Atterbury, guys. Yep. That's, that's our country, man. Were you surprised at, we always call it big country. Like it's just like that ranch you were on where you stay. It's just like, it's like big country where you just go out and you're like, it just goes, you know, it's that short grass, you know, it doesn't grow up tall and lush. It's just kind of that hard, short grass. It, it, was it green? When, was it green when you were there? No. So yes, it was very green. In fact, I got to tour a ranch in uh, Molt, Montana, and people were like, this hasn't been this green in a year, except for that ranch in, in the Augusta area. It was kind of burnt up still, and there wasn't a ton of grass. But yeah, that was the thing that amazed me. Or the two things that amazed me amazed me the most is we were at a we went we went and toured Chad Peterson's operations in Molt, and the grass is like that tall. I get forty six inches of rain here, and I can grow grass ten months, nine months out of the year if you're doing it right. But it's what we call washy grass, and like it takes me all year to put weight on. And you guys are getting eight inches of grass with enough nutrition to to wean seven hundred pound sharp, you know smoky calves at the at the sale barn, which is impressive. But then when we were, when we were headed, I remember where we were at. And you guys talk about it a lot. That little town of Belt, which is kind of like built down in the gulch or whatever, whatever you refer to that valley. It's built down in. And you're kind of cruising there. Yeah, you're cruising there. And I remember her and I started to look out. We would look out as far as we could see, like the farthest point of the road we could see, and then mark our mileage. We could see hilltops that you would you knew you were going to drive on and they would be like 25 and 26 miles was our visibility that day. Wow. That's just kind of the topography, but yeah, that's pretty mind blowing. I mean, we don't have wide open spaces like that here. It can be wide open. When you guys were here in June, we normally, that's going to be our most green lush time of the year. We had no, no spring moisture. So all the grass, I mean, it grew an inch or two and went straight to seed because there was no moisture. So we, we were looking in, in June, what we normally look like in the end of August. Usually we have May to about the beginning of July. We're pretty, pretty green and lush, but this last year we, we got hammered. In fact, I think some of the farmers this area around Fairfield's pretty famous for, for raising malt barley. And so they, you know, they go out and seed in the spring and usually you get enough rain to, to bring the, the field up. Everyone around here pretty much does pivot irrigation, you know, which runs in a big circle. When you're flying in an airplane, you can look down and see the circles. If you've ever wondered what those are to you listening out there, those are, those are pivot sprinklers. You just spin a circle. They didn't ever get any moisture up here. So they seeded the square field and nothing would come up. So they had to actually run their sprinklers just to get germination. And so they had, you know, a perfect circle of barley in their field. And then the corners, a lot of them never did germinate. They just stayed, you know, bare ground. It was, it was bizarrely dry around here. And then, yeah, then you just pop, pop up to where you guys went and they were flooding. So we were no moisture and then flooding just a couple hours away. Yeah. Yeah. It's been wild. It's the, the whole, I don't really feel like we have weather patterns anymore. We have weather events and that's what, you know, the Midwest, Texas, all the way through up and down the last two years have been pretty, pretty rough and pretty non-normal, I would say, but this might be the new normal. Who knows? Yeah. So you're in North Carolina, correct? Yeah, North Carolina. Did you grow up in North Carolina? No, I, I grew up in Vermont, actually, on a, on a cattle farm up there. Okay. Do you guys call them cattle farms out there? Oh, man. So I don't know what I am. <laughs> so I, I just recently got married to a, a beautiful, my beautiful wife, who Jax has met. And she's from a farm in Illinois, a row cropping farm. They farm, they plant stuff, and they raise stuff. So they, they don't like it when I call what I do a farm because I don't, I mean, I do plant some annuals to make it through summer slump. I can't really call myself a rancher. You know, that, that's not doing it justice. I, I guess I'm a grazer, a recreational cattleman. I, I don't know. Where I'm from, yeah, we just call ourselves farmers because if you're in agriculture, you're a farmer, I reckon. But 
So is there anyone in Vermont that is labeled a rancher? I guess we would have been the closest thing. You know, we raised stalker cattle, so we would get uh, a couple hundred yearlings in out of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and then just graze them through until there was snow and then, you know, sell them and wouldn't have to carry cows through the snow. But there was a local rodeo circuit, um, Pond Hill, where they wore cowboy hats and we would rent some pasture to them. So there's a lot of dairy farms. We were like kind of the one big beef cattle outfit, but we didn't call it the ranch. You know, we just called it our farm. Yeah, I guess. It's funny how that changes around the country, different areas. Like you call someone a cattle farmer up here and they're like, what'd you see? <laughs> I'm kind of just far- more of a professional polywire cowboy. That's what I refer to myself as. Oh, damn, I like that. You sound a lot like Luke. <laughs> yeah, that the term farm versus ranch is interesting. Where we're at in Fairfield, it's all farms around here. And people run some runs. They call it running cattle, but we farm, but we run cattle. Because mostly they're, they're you know raising barley or wheat. And you get up more towards Augustine in the mountains. You know, no one farms there. It's all ranching even though they're farming alfalfa. <laughs> so they, that's true. They, they ranch it. They're, you know, they're, they're growing alfalfa. And then, you know, in Lewistown where Jackson was at, that's going to be more ranch land, but there is west of west of Lewistown will be farmland, but you know, the farm and ranch. But the thing that's most I like is when I've lived in California, someone will say, Oh yeah, we've got a horse ranch. And they're like, yeah, we've got a, we've got a, a quarter of an acre. I go, huh? <laughs> so you've got a a lawn and a, a stable, yeah. and that's and that's a, considered a ranch. So I don't even I don't even know what ranch versus farm means. I I personally don't consider myself ranchy rancher. I don't not enough cows, not enough land. I just say I I do I play around in some farming. Yeah, yeah, and that's what where I live in North Carolina. I live one county east. My farm's one county east of a Charlotte, which is you know, booming metropolis, but there is, there's a ton of agriculture. In fact, agriculture is still the number one be in North Carolina. It used to be tobacco. Took, everybody took the buyout, but there's still a lot of cotton. And then in my County union County, it's primarily, well, poultry production's huge. So at one time we were the second biggest poultry producing County in the U S so chickens and turkeys. Real quick, Taylor, you just mentioned something that's interesting that I think people might find curious. You said it used to be a lot of tobacco farming, but a lot of people took the buyout. Can you explain that? Yeah. So as far as I understand is the government paid people to stop raising tobacco. There is still tobacco around. In fact, Trucker Chris is from some of the best tobacco country around in the foothills. But as far as I understand it, there was, I don't know if it was a subsidy or a lump payment or what it was, but they helped the farmers financially switch from raising tobacco to other crops. You know, tobacco, raising tobacco took a, a special group of equipment. It took a lot of labor. So people would have labor camps that have greenhouses to start plants. A lot of that equipment because the tobacco plants are bedded kind of like strawberries or blueberries. I think they help people transition from raising that tobacco, getting that equipment sold and, and switching over to more traditional row cropping type equipment. Cause that's now what we have. We have a lot of row cropping and it's all double crops. So it's, it's wheat, beans, and corn is what you see a lot of some with some cotton mixed in, depending on what part of the state you're in. Okay. What was their beef? Uh-huh. Did you catch that? What was their beef with tobacco? I don't know. That would have been before my time, but we still have the, you know, there used to be a huge, there's the, the plant still exists. It's just not operational. It's now rented out. I think it was, lung, I think it was lung cancer was the beef. <laughs> I think that was the, I think cancer in, was the beef they had with it. Back in the 70s, everyone was just growing tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some great shirts and I'd like to find one. It, it says like North Carolina, or it says it's got a big tobacco leaf and it says tobacco, the state vegetable of North Carolina. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That was all before my time, but uh, gotcha. yeah, we have a lot of row cropping now. And a lot of those row croppers for people with, you know, they'll have some chicken houses, some poultry houses, and then they'll have 20 to 50 cows to basically keep the weeds down and you know, run them on crop residue. So right now you're, you're running just cattle or are you doing any farming at all? Or are you just cattle? Just cattle. I mean, I'll hire out some work to be done a little bit of farming, but that's basically planting annuals in my pasture just to make it through. We call it summer slump. So like July, August here, it gets so hot. A lot of my grass will stop growing and my cool season annuals will stop growing. So we'll plant some, some warm season annuals just to make it through that some sorghum sudan grass and some hybrids that just lets us keep grazing until we get the cooler fall weather to start grazing our perennials again 
that's the extent of farming we do. Okay. So that's sort of in the way that we end up having to put up some hay to get through the winter. You sort of, you plant annuals for your, your cattle to graze while the grass isn't growing very well in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we just graze it. We don't mechanically harvest it. We just, we polywire strip graze it and we can get a couple grazings off of that. I, you know, we can usually get four or five grazing. That's usually about the time as, as even though it gets really hot, we start to get the bands of the hurricane rain. You know, those hurricanes will come up through Florida and we get a lot of the band rain, which means we just get these quick, hard summer showers. And if you don't have any, if you don't have any biomass to grab that moisture and, you know, get it down under and, and get it in your soil, it'll just evaporate off when it's a hundred degrees and a hundred degrees humidity. So we kind of use that or that's my plan, right? So we use that to, to get those cows through the hot, hot time in summer. Okay. So you and Luke are going to, you're like poly wire strip grazing. You're getting into biomass to capture the moistures. You're, you're getting into some stuff that I think the normal folk, is it okay to call them the normal folk and that you guys are kind of the, the, the strange, I don't know. Anyway, the, the regular, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, you can probably just say the hobbyist for me. Okay. So that's not much than a hobby. <laughs> you're going to, you're okay. You're getting into some stuff that might, we might need to go and, and talk just a little bit on. So, Polywire strip grazing. What is it and why? And then the biomass, because you're doing some of this stuff here, trying to build up your your biomass. Why are you guys doing this? What's what's the deal with biomass? I thought covering the ground with biomass will keep things from growing because they can't see through it. And how does that work? Either one of you. Taylor, you've been to ranching for profit school, so I'll let you go ahead and answer that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, can't say I'm an expert in any of this. I just, I read a lot and, and go to school once in a while and try to study it as much, but I try to leave a good bit of residue. So a good bit of the grass, I just try to graze like the top half of the grass. We get so hot. I try to, I try to insulate the grass from the heat of the summer sun down here. So soil's living, soil is a living thing and past, I think 92 degrees soil temp. You can pretty much nuke all the, the top biology out of your soil. So I literally use what I leave in the summertime. When I say leave, when I move the cows to the next pasture, I try to leave enough grass to insulate that soil and keep my soil temps low enough, keep the, the soil biology alive and keep my grass growing. If I can keep my soil temps cool enough, the grass will keep growing, even though it's super hot on top. Same thing within the winter. You know, we get cool enough here that our grasses slack off and go dormant. If you can insulate with enough extra grass, you can keep your soil temp high enough to keep your, your grass growing through the winter and really reduce your hay, your hay bill, which is generally your biggest expense, at least my biggest expense in raising a cow. That's what he's referring to biomass, the vegetation. What you're leaving behind. Mm-hmm. Yes, biomass is probably, probably short for biological mass. So mm-hmm. I, I, I assume that's what it is. I have to make a big guess, but so you want to leave protection on, uh, you want to protect the soil and you can only protect it with vegetation. Okay. So the more biomass you have, the more protection for your soil. And then that allows, you know, also with more biomass, you generally increase the water holding capacity of your soils. They don't dry out as fast. They're cooler. Now I've heard, I've heard more. about this a little bit in different areas around the country where people have done this. In fact, one of my truckers was telling me about it, that they do some, I don't even know how they make these maps, but they make these maps that somehow show the, the amount of water retention in that soil in that area. Somehow, I don't know, maybe you know, but that in his neck of the woods, there's, there's, you know, some people that have done certain farming practices that have allowed a buildup of biomass and that they found there that you know it's holding like so many inches you can go down you know so many inches and still find moisture versus maybe a more just straight conventional type of farming the the moisture only you know is maybe an inch deep but that 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 biomass I, I never realized how important it was to have that on top of the soil especially like where you're at taylor you you what'd you say 40 how many inches of rain i think we average 46 inches of rain that's like a decade's worth of rain in montana <laughs> Yeah. And just like you said, no, Luke said it better. Just veget- vegetation, leaving it, right? That, uh-huh. 
it's just it helps a lot of things. Even with even with the driving rain, it just protects the dirt from being capped by the you know letting the rain pound it until it slicks off. But the figure I hear thrown around a lot is like every one percent increase in organic matter in your soil, you can hold an extra twenty two thousand gallons of water per acre. So it's just a goal a goal I have of to keep all the rain that ha- lands on my little farm keep it all there right and in the soil versus letting it go down the stream to the neighbors mm-hmm. that's that's just so our goal all, so it's all basically just driven out of selfishness yes <laughs> frugalness because yeah. rain is free kind is free right i like to turn that into protein which i can then sell so oh, i love it so keeping biomass above the soil is all the protection and then it at some point will go into the soil which is what we're talking about organic matter in the soil and in addition if you have more biomass or vegetation above the soil you're going to also have more root structure under the soil because you have much more greenery that can support a more a more robust root structure which is again more organic matter when those roots go through death periods or or dormancies different things that will become organic matter in the soil so like Taylor said, a 1% increase in the organic matter of your soil equates to 22,000 gallons of water holding capacity. That's just a 1% increase. Yep. Wow. That doesn't mean all of a sudden I've got 22,000 more gallons of water. <laughs> it disappears. But like, for instance, here, where you have, you know, you have all your snow melts, all your spring rains, whatnot, you're going to get a bunch of gallons of water put on it. And if you don't have the organic content to hold that water in your soil, it's going to go away. And so that's, that's kind of what that whole thrust is. Spider. Speaking of organics. And I collect spiders here a lot. <laughs> but yeah, and then polywire is, polywire is just a temporary electric fence. And I've got a pretty good permanent electric fence system on the farm that we put in since we purchased it in 2018. And polywire is just, it allows flexibility within the system. It just lets me divide up pastures or paddocks into whatever size portions I want to match the, the, you know, the growth rate of the grass that's there, the speed at which I want to move the cows around and the availability within my schedule to move the cows. So just allows flexibility in the system. Yeah. If you, if I knew I was going to be at my farm forever, maybe I would invest in the infrastructure to build a lot of permanent fencing, but this is all just interior fencing for me that lets me be flexibility and lets me be flexible with, how I graze my farm. Well, and you're probably still kind of learning the ins and outs of your property as you go. You're going, oh, this this area needs this at this time of the year, and this little section will hold cattle a little longer than that section. And poly wire, temporary fence, electric fence allows you to kind of do that. I can't tell you how many miles of fence and corrals over the years we've taken down where we're like, oh yeah, we used to have this fence because of this, but it didn't work. So you know, poly allows you to go, ah, instead of having to tear out a whole actual <laughs> legit fence line. You yeah, absolutely. Pull up, move out. You hit the nail on the head. We're still, we're still learning what the land will take and, and, and how that land, how we can graze that land best. So it just allows flexibility within the system. Do you put your poly wire on reels? Have you ever heard of, I think the name is McBride Fencing Solutions? I have not. This was a game changer for me with, with moving electric fences. So what, what do you hang your reels on when you're moving stuff around? Like, just like go, moving them around, I just hang them on the rack of the four-wheeler. We do everything off four-wheelers. I mean, when, you're, when you set it up, like if you're going to run a wire from you know, point X to point Y, where you, you set your reel on one end and you run your wire out to the other point? Yeah, gotcha. No, I do everything backwards, so... My main best electric fence is actually kind of cuts a diagonal line across my property. And I put the reel on the, on the good high tensile fence end. And then I run the handle to the crappy, the crappy end. So, so that's my, what do you hook the handle fence. into? What do you use for an anchor? Just generally the fence on the other side of the field. We don't have big enough runs that you're having a dead end that. Oh, I gotcha. Look up this McBride fencing solution. They have a, it's just a little, you just step on it. It's got two spikes. It drives into the ground and it's got a, a, a brace that braces and your, your reel just hooks into it. You run your wire. It makes setting up fences. You can do them anywhere without having to pound a post anywhere. It makes it even more mobile. I don't even know how to describe it. You just look them up. McBride fencing solutions. 
I'll have to check it out. But those of yeah, that's that's been a game changer for moving electric fence for me. Heck yeah, we got we built some. I welded them up here one night. We welded some stuff on our four wheeler, and we do similar thing. You know, I'll hook one end and then throw the reel on the four wheeler, and then just unlock it and drive. Hook it on one end, turn right back around, and have the posts on the back, and just stick them as I go. We got a pretty good system. Trying to refine it all the time. Yeah, it seems like I get figured out one year, and then the next year I realize I need to make some changes. Yeah, you may you may frown at this, but I think I am going to transition out of cattle into meat goats. If you can keep goats in a fence, I will give you a, a medal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to put up all. Uh, permanent net yeah net fence but i think for the amount of acreage i have and for the market on these goats i think i i can financially do a lot better with goats and cattle i don't i could 100 percent see that in fact i went and visited the one of the ranches i was at in molt was the hollenbeck ranch which i know you know jacks you know henry hollenbeck i went to a sheer sheep shearing school on that ranch before there was a sheep shearing school through, I think, Montana State being put on the night that we visited. That's why they just invited everybody there. And the Hollenbecks were in school with us, invited everybody there, which was re- really neat. I've never been around sheep. And they, had, they have some goats, but primarily sheep. And that's what him and I were talking about. And look, honestly, I know I, know I, could, I would probably be better suited for sheep as well. We just don't, I don't know sheep and I'm not there enough right now to learn how to manage it all probably. But there's definitely a market for us a big sheep market around here. I think what you're saying there, Taylor, is probably just the nice, like, correct way to put into terms what Rooster has mentioned before on the podcast. And that is, from a trucking perspective, whenever we load sheep, we actually put a full face ski mask on with just two eye holes. Yeah. So that nobody can identify us as having stooped so low as to become a sheep hauler because they are the lowest form of the livestock hauler. And so I, you just worded that so nicely. Like it really boils down to you just wouldn't be caught dead with sheep because you're a cattleman. No, I, no, I don't identify like that. I, I actually pride myself on being the weird one, right? So I, I wouldn't think at all. I'd like to actually run sheep with my cows to complement the cows. I, I've heard they eat a different, you know, they eat more forbs than the cows do. And you can run a couple sheep for every cow in your herd and not have to increase your land mass. So I, I, it is a goal. It's a goal, but I don't know a darn thing about sheep other than I like wool to keep me warm. So, <laughs> You know, Jackson and dad think they're these big cattle ranchers. And I, I have about a hundred ewes. In addition, I, I think I've got about 40 cows now and about 100 ewes, and I want to transition into more of the goat direction. But Dad and Jackson seem to be very hesitant to even give it a thought because you're going to be a goat farmer. <laughs> like, they're just a pride thing. This is coming from the guy who likes to drive a Cascadia truck <laughs> because he makes more money in fuel savings. <laughs> That's true. You know, now- you, you literally, you, you will make more money with goats. Just like you'll save more money driving a Cascadia. <laughs> you put it in those terms and I think I can set my pride aside now and I, I think I'll sign up for the goats. There you go. I expect you to go get a whole potload of goats. <laughs> I actually have hauled a potload of goats one time. There's a, there's a buyer, he's a cattle buyer up here in Montana and he also buys sheep. And in the summertime he puts goats together as well. Cause he's buying sheep, buying goats. He will, we'll talk more about this with Weston when he gets home, but he goes, I got a load. And this was back when I was just hungry. Like just that's a load. Give me the load and I'll go. Let's roll. He goes, I got a load. You, you got to stop here and here and here and here. It's like four pickups. And didn't really tell me what just said. There's so many head of, I think he said it was sheep. But when I got there, it was all goats. It was all these goats he'd put together. And so I filled my entire cattle pot full of goats and hauled to Nebraska. And I'll tell you, pulling into the truck stop to fuel up, I don't know what it is. Goats make the weirdest noises. You know how like, the, oh yeah, like a sheep is like, bah, right? And a cow's like, moo. Pig goes oink. Goats are like, ah, oh. <laughs> like they're all different. And then you just make all these weird the most bizarre. Some of them sound like a, a human being screaming. So I pull into the truck stop and I'm fueling up. I go in and pay and I come back out and I, I couldn't see my truck. I could just hear it from afar. And I was just like, what? 
what is going on? And you go and you peek in. It's just all these goats just doing doing their thing, making their noise. But man, they're they're a curious little creature, little creature. Oh, we've got a a couple dairy goats that we milk just for for milk and cheese at our place here. And I ventured into a few more goats. My sister had got a couple Nubian goats that didn't work out for her. And so I brought them over and they didn't, they didn't work out for me either. They were trouble. But after we got them, like my, we have Lamanca dairy goats and these Nubians, when they came in, our Lamancas don't make much sound at all. And I was out doing something and I heard, I thought it was a, a blood curdling scream that some I, I thought someone was murdering my kid on our property it was that extreme of a sound so i went running out to try and figure out what what was happening and one of these nubian goats had got separated from the rest and was just making it sound but it sound was it like a scream sounded like a someone being murdered scream weird oh, but yeah. so i've got one i'm curious this is a practice you guys both do and i think you probably both have mixed results from it, but it's an interesting practice that I wanted to ask you both about was your bale grazing. Taylor, I noticed on your uh, on your Instagram, which you guys, Taylor's Instagram for his, he, he basically posts 100% ranch content. It's just, and correct me here if I'm wrong, Taylor, but it's it's Ridgeview, correct? Yep, yep. Ridgeview land, land and cattle. Land and cattle. Ridgeview, land and cattle just straight and that's his Instagram. If if you want to see if you guys want to see throughout the course of the year some of these practices, he does a really good job he and his wife of of going through and giving you the good family feeling experience of, you know, rotating and moving the poly wire and and moving cattle around and, and you do a great job of explaining what's going on to really teach right down to the pumpkin gathering. Taylor gathers pumpkins as well to feed his cattle, <laughs> which is which is always Cool. But this, uh, go check him out on Instagram. The The practice that I'm talking about is this bale grazing that you just, I think you just finished up bale grazing a piece of ground. Is that correct? Yeah. So Leah and I got married on our farm. So it kind of threw our rotation of pastures off for the end of fall. We, were, we got married November 19th. I was trying to keep one field pretty pristine for the wedding ceremony. So it kind of, and then we ran out of moisture. We kind of ran out of grass. And I've been wanting to try this experiment anyway. So it took a little more work on my part just because I'm in a partnership on my farm where if you know, I can't be there all the time with my, with my racing career. So I have somebody down there that does some of the stuff for us. And uh, what we did is we brought in a semi load of hay and we put it out in like a grid system and I, I had pre-planned it out so I could give, I think on our, for our little herd, we just gave four bales a day every three days, which was the tonnage I needed. And so we put all the bales out at once in a grid. And then we just moved every three days. We just moved one string of polywire and it would take you 10 minutes to move it. We moved away from the water trough and then back the other way. So, but what it allowed us to do was on five acres, just five acres allowed us to get through five weeks of feeding without tearing everything up. We only cranked the tractor one time to put all those bales out, which was a big fuel savings cost. That's where I really started to get into the nitty gritty on the numbers, the labor was not that much more. We could do it in 10 minutes. We could zip over there. You know, I set it up in a way that we only had to put in like a hundred yards of poly wires, kind of a shape. You just had to run a quick little line. And I'd usually set up the next one if I had time. So if I didn't have time to do much, I could literally just drop the line and move on. But what it also did is we did it on our worst ground where we wanted a lot of that manure and urine to, you know, to be there to hopefully yeah. enrich that. And, and let, me, let me hop in here real quick too, Taylor. So everyone up here everyone's beef. Oh, I'm just really milking that one. Everyone's beef with bale grazing, you know, a, a conventional rancher would be the cattle end up stomping on some of that, that hay and it doesn't get eaten. And so it's, it's felt to be, you know, quite a waste, but bale grazing is interesting because that percentage of waste is actually part of your overall, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I didn't, we didn't waste nearly as much as I thought we were going to. And I think part of that was matching, matching the cow's intake to how many bales you give them at a time. And like, they kind of get competitive about it and they'd really eat it all before they ever trampled it or fouled it. But part of me had calculated out, you know, if a, let's say they waste 10% and let's say their body utilizes 75% of the nutrients. So the other 25% are coming out the back. Well, look at chemical fertilizer prices right now. 
I factored it in that anything that was wasted on the on the intake side was was just going to be a, a huge gain in you know the fertilization of the soil, which I didn't expect to see any results till the spring. Now we've had some pretty unseasonably warm fall, but we've got grass already growing, which I don't know if it'll make it through. We're pretty cold and rainy now, but it's definitely done something. That little patch up there is greener than everything else, and uh, we already have grass growing for the fall there. So we'll hope hopefully it's the last round of the spring. Huh. So and that so that's from adding that that hay waste and then the the manure and the urine all makes this bio wonder that has allowed grass in in ground that previously was pretty pretty tough wasn't real productive. Yeah, it was pretty rough ground. It was kind of on a hilltop. We had cleared off some trees. Uh, we put a water pad in there, and it was just real rocky. Not much grew, so it wasn't. What's the worst that happened? We have the same outcome next year right but I, I like it i could see us i could see us you know doing a lot more of it in the future it's just a good way to improve the worst ground and i know it's it's different wherever you are like we have such high humidity i feel like if i was to put out a whole season's worth of hay to try to do that i might lose a lot of nutritional quality because you know our hay will mold where i know in lo- lower humidity places there's guys that can put out a whole season's worth in the weather and, and it's stuff doesn't break down as fast. I think that's the difference in like a brittle versus a non-brittle environment, but no, I like the results so far. Gotcha. And Luke, you've, you've done this as well. Yeah. Taylor, are you doing large round bales? Yeah. Yeah. They're like thousand pound, 1200 pound round bales. Are they net wrapped or twine wrapped? So these were net wrapped and I had them set them out just like a, like the tractor would set them down. So not so round side up and then, all we would do when we fed the next four was I'd push them over flat side and unwrap them. So I did try to leave them. I left them round side up just to shed any moisture we may get. And it's, I thought, you know, I, we just went out there by hand and flipped, pushed them over, you know, it's four bales. And I could use the workout anyway. Probably not the most efficient thing, but yeah, they didn't, I didn't see any, any like hay quality loss. Now they're only out there five weeks, but we got through them quick. Yeah, you guys are a lot stronger than me to be able to lift up a twelve hundred pound bale. <laughs> oh, just tip over, just tip over. I have I have bale grazed and had not good results to begin, and once I figured it out, excellent results. But it's one of the one of the things that I found here is that when they would when they would be eating the bales, this is all winter time, so cold ground snow that they would bed in it pretty aggressively. Because they, that's the only place where there was something to, that wasn't snow to lay in. So if they had the opportunity to bed in it, they would do that. So I have to back off on the feeding a little bit to force them to eat more before they bed in it or eat where they sleep. <laughs> the first year that I did it, I, I left a little bit too much residue and I got some dead, dead patches for a year. And then when, when stuff did grow back, it grew back extremely lush, thick and good. But I did go for a year with some dead spots from doing that. The next year I went out by hand and just pitchforked the thicker spots and spread it out. That worked really good. I got really good spring growth and in subsequent years, really good growth in those areas. And then and then after, after that, I started just making them eat, eat better before I gave them fresh. I started determining when they needed new bales is when they were complaining. <laughs> but I, so I usually make them go a day beyond their complaining and that would make them clean it up more. But I, the places I've done it is, it is within two years, a, a complete transformation of, of what grows and how thickly it grows. But it's a, it's, it definitely was a learning, there's a learning curve to it to see of, of how much you let them eat versus before you give them more. Yeah. I have, I've seen some, some ranches out here. Let me, let me preface this. When we, when we put up hay out here, we kind of consider that haying is not done until all the bales are stacked. So, you know, you cut it when it's dry, you rake it, then you bale it up into the round bales. And, you know, in a really good year, it could be a couple thousand bales, round bales sitting out there that, you know, have to be individually handled. And it's kind of a, kind of a running joke with ranches out here, how long a rancher will let his bales sit out in the field just because they work so hard to make the bale. And then when it's done, they're like, okay, we'll just, we'll gather, we'll gather them in the fall or whenever. And so, so we kind of tease that some of the, you'll drive by some of these places in Eastern Montana that still in the snowy winter have bales out in their fields that they never, they never put in the stack. 
and we'll tease as we drive by that oh they're i think they're getting ready to try that new bale grazing <laughs> technique even though it's just that they had they never got out and finished the finished the job i run into trouble bale grazing here as well hard to run poly wire because the ground freezes and so i can't get posts into the ground very efficiently and then sometimes i can't get them back out until the ground unthaws without breaking my posts so i so i run into that i have tried tried sticking the posts in the bales and running it you know instead of the the post coming out of the ground sticking out the end of bales and that's kind of worked but i've i've kind of found that for me to bale graze i i'm having i haven't figured out how to best all set all my hay up out in the field to begin with and then and then release it you know periodically over the winter i i usually end up when i do it hauling the bales out for each feeding just because that frozen ground has been problematic for me that's one of the biggest things most of our rain we get is really through our winter you know so one of the one of the big reasons i was just trying to eliminate it is because when you drive the tractor out to feed hay in the winter here you just that's when your soil is the nastiest it's just wet you nearly gum up your farm quick which makes a lot of just puts you back all spring so that was that was one of the big goals and I do think it's much different where the ground freezes. You know, we fed hay through the winter in Vermont growing up. We, we kept a little brood herd over the winter when the stalker cattle left. And I, I remember being able to, other than having to fight through the snow to get out and put out hay, but you could do it. You know, ground was good and solid. You weren't making any mud. Down here, we get we get pretty muddy in the winter. And that's, that's your biggest thing you're trying to fight. <laughs> that's just funny to imagine that because, I mean, you look out the window. You're just so used to winter. <laughs> Is like the frozen tundra, you know, <laughs> just to think that somebody somewhere else in the country is like, oh, the muddy scape, you know, it's just constant mud. But what I've, what I have done, I did this the past couple of years and instead of actual bale grazing where the, I just set up the bale and let them, let them graze it. I unroll, I unroll the, the bales out and they, they eat there. And I will, I'll just one day unroll and then unroll the next day right next to it and just strip right next to it, each other. And I get a, I get a good residue and good manure concentration. But when, when it snows, that's all covered. And I will go over the top of the same places multiple times throughout the winter. And I've, I found that my residues was spread a little better than bale grazing, and, but also not quite as, not quite as thick. I, I was getting the... I was getting this as good of results as my best results bale grazing with no dead spots and that's what's been working for me is is concentrating my feeding in the same place when i when i have snow covering it if i if i don't have snow covering it i feel like i'm just done rolling hay on top of manure and there's a they're not eating as well because there's so much manure mixed in even though it's frozen but when it's completely covered with snow i get you know a layer of manure and hay snow freezes and another layer on top so when that all starts thawing out in the spring i get a real nice real nice coverage i'll usually harrow it to break up that manure but that's that's where i've been kind of found my sweet spot the past couple of years i'm gonna tell you guys a quick little story of mine then that's gonna make you both lower your head and shake do a slow head shake and shame of something that i did <laughs> you're gonna go oh you did what so we we fed this was several years ago Back before I was trucking much and I was more just on the ranch full time helping, helping mom and dad. And we had had a real snowy winter where I, we just were feeding and feeding and feeding. And come springtime, combined with the snowy winter, we all, the, the feed was fairly coarse that we were feeding that year. So the, the coarser stems of the alfalfa, the cattle don't, you know, they don't really like to eat. So they leave that behind. So come springtime, once all the snow melts, you know, the manure is left behind and we go out with what's called a harrow and we drag the fields and break up the big chunks of manure. And the layer appeared to me to be so thick of just alfalfa stems and manure that I was like, there's no way anything is ever going to grow through this. And, and of course, rooster didn't really care. He kind of let me do what I wanted. So I went out in the spring with our hay rake, with our V rake, and I raked up all this, this stuff into rows, into, into long rows, and I burned it because I was like, <laughs> this is how we'll get stuff to grow through. So, so we burned it off and I was like, and then of course, you know, everything grew 
typical of what it would have normally done. And uh, now that I hear you guys talking about biomass and 1% residue increases, I'm like, oh no. So I'm going to say, not only did you not, <laughs> did you not take advantage of the potential for organic matter incorporation and increase water holding capacity. Yeah. You burned off a lot of your organic matter just with that rake cranking yeah. across the mm -hmm. soil. So you, I don't know, you, you probably lost a good 50,000 yeah. gallons per acre in that mm -hmm. little experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not quite that much of it. <laughs> so Taylor, I hope you'll still speak to me after. Hey, I don't think anybody should have to do anything a certain way. I, I'm just unique in that. I'm like fifth generation, but first generation. I bought my farm myself. So nobody gets to tell me how to do anything. And I don't really have any preconceived notions. I, I stepped away from, from raising cattle from the time I was in high school till 2018. I'm just kind of having like really enjoying relearning it and finding out all the different ways people do things and adapting different styles, you know, try to, I, I look at the guys down in Australia and New Zealand a lot because They've been doing a lot on a little, so some droughted out ground for years. And I don't know, everything to me is just an experiment. Yeah, I have a real job. I don't, I'm not trying to keep the lights on. I wouldn't, that's why I won't, in, I don't want to insult anybody and think that like I'm know it all by any means. I don't, I'm just playing around to see what works and, and what's profitable because I do, there's this constant tension. I know you guys talk about it in Montana with, you know, more people moving in and that's definitely a thing here. You know, Charlotte's been growing since the day I moved here. So for, for ag ground to be able to compete at all with housing developments, we got to find, I got to find a way to make it pay in some, in some way, or it's just, or, or it can just always be a hobby. That's fine too. But I kind of have a passion right now. I'm trying to, trying to make it into a legit business. Yep. And I think the key to that is meat goats. What have you ever looked at the, the comparison animal? When I say animal unit, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We I calculate everything in standard animal units, so okay. one thousand pounds units. Okay, typically you can compare a cow. The cow is the the animal unit, and most things are compared to a one one animal unit with a cow. Usually, you can do six goats per six goats is equal to one cow unit. Have you ever heard? Okay, yeah, I've heard that. And so you've got, you know, a, a goat's going to average two to two and a half kids per doe, depending on what your breed is. So let's say two, that's 12, 12 kids. What does the half kid look like? Two well, and a half. <laughs> yeah. He's only got one horn. <laughs> one horn. So I'm, my, my in the head math isn't real quick. So I'm pulling up a calculator. So if you've got 12 kids, I think the, the last sale, goat sale that I saw here in Montana, I think 40 pounders were, some of them were bringing like 150 per kid. So if you've got, if you've got 12 kids per animal unit, that's like 1800 bucks per animal unit with meat goats. Here, I, good luck with a calf. No, I, I don't disagree there. I, look, you're not, you're not saying anything. I don't know. Well, I just, I, I'm not trying to tell you what you know now. I'm trying to convince. Yeah. Cause Taylor, <laughs> the thing about it too, that you have going is you live so close to the market for goats on that East coast, which is where all the goats tend to flow to. You, you, you know, housing developments moving in around you. Taylor, the thing too, is you, you get one of those little, those goats that are bottle fed. They are, they're more attached to you than a dog and you get a cute little goat. You, you take that on the road with you. Oh, Leah would love like, a goat. Look, you're, you're in the, you're in the crew chief booth. You've got that little goat at your feet. I mean, you've got, oh man, you've got your gimmick. People will just flock to you. Yep. All right, so so Jax is going to get a potload of goats with a cab over. He's going to bring the whole thing to North Carolina. He's going to leave the cab over and the goats. Well, he can leave the cattle pod too. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'll rent all the kids. This is the big thing now. And all, we have so many breweries. And I'll rent all the kid goats for goat yoga because that's the goat yoga and therapy goat. There you go. We don't even have to eat them. <laughs> can, you believe that, can you believe that you can do goat yoga and make more money than raising them for anything else? That's crazy. Well, I just, I'll need a, I'll need a herder. So if you, if one of you could send a child or yourselves yeah. to be my herdsman, we'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I should even say this, but having goats, I think it's become my favorite animal. It is. That animal is, is an unbelievable animal. You know, to each their own. For, for a lot of reasons, but, but yeah. 
but then you are a goat farmer though. There's, there's that, you know, but, but I, like you say, I survived driving a Cascadia. So I know you could overcome the goat farm stigma thing. No problem. You too, Taylor, you and Luke, you should do this hand in hand, this journey together. The goat journey. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Taylor, in fact, why don't I raise the goats and you can feed lot them at your place? Just turn your place into a goat feed lot. Who cares about about the beautiful pasture? Just feedlot it. (laughs) Isn't that what they essentially told you to do at your ranching for profit school? Jackson told me. Oh, no, it's the exact opposite of that. It's all just graze, graze, graze. Don't feed hay and graze. I thought Jackson mentioned that when when you told them the cost of hay where you're at. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, You're right. You're all comparing per ton hay costs. And I screwed up a little bit and I didn't. Like that's that is hard here. People people sell hay per bale, and they don't ever weigh their bales. So like, calculate. But I I screwed up on a calculation. I was like, holy cow, our our hay is only like sixty dollars a ton. And one old guy was like, my hay was sixty dollars a ton. I'd feed lot my whole freaking place and pack it full of cows. And I was like, wow, that's what the math said for sure. But my hair is not that cheap at all. No. Okay. Yeah, you're trying to make your place beautiful and. Oh. rich lush pastures and they're telling you to just turn it into a feedlot yep oh. <laughs> no i guess that that's the big i mean that's the thing about ranch for profit that's they're just trying to teach you how to how to run the numbers really well which is what i needed i don't have any education in ag business in any type of way like i needed to know the 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 running of the ranch side not the operating but the, the business side right the economics and the finance behind it so are you doing cow calf yeah we're primarily cow calf yeah God, I went to a really good cattle marketing school. Wally Olson, I think is his name out of Claremore, Oklahoma, does it? Have you heard of him? Oh, yeah. Have yeah, you gone to that? Man. I have not. It's on my list. He actually put one on two nights ago. You could have done it in a webinar. It was 100 bucks. I wish I could have made it work. But yeah, him and a guy named Doug Ferguson, they both do the sell-by marketing stuff. It's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I attended one of those. I, I was really interested in Bud Williams's marketing stuff, and Bud is the one who taught Willie. Wally, 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 Willie, um, Waylon, me taught, had taught Wally. Have you heard their, their thoughts on, on never keeping cows past like five, six years old? Yeah. Cow depreciation curve. Know it well. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's one that's a hard, that's a hard <laughs> sell for people. Cause most people, I mean, that's their prime cow. They don't, they'd never take into account that depreciation. Yeah. No, that's what's funny is it does. It seems so foreign with cows, but then like, you know, I look at, I buy old Ford trucks, Jack spies cab overs. We all like on, on cars and trucks, it seems so, so intuitive. Yeah. You, you buy something when it's going to appreciate and sell it when it's overvalued. Right. It seems, seems easy with that, but with like a living critter, I don't know. It, it is, it's a hard <laughs> thing for people to have their heads So I'm going to briefly try attempt to explain this because listeners have probably glazed over by now, <laughs> <laughs> but when you have a, a female calf, which is called a heifer her value appreciates she gets worth more each year until about five or six years old that is the peak of her value and then after that she starts decreasing in her value until she is not able to breed anymore so a lot of people that have cow calf operations which means they have cows they breed them every year and raise calves and then sell the calves they get a a cow and they will keep her from basically when she, her first breeding cycle, her first calf until, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, till she is just too old, she doesn't breed back and then they get rid of her at that point. And so this cow appreciation concept is you keep your cows until they're the peak of what they're worth. And then you sell them at five or six years old, which with most ranchers, that's unheard of. I mean, that's, I mean, you try and tell someone to do that and you're you're talking devil talk but in the cattle marketing idea is is when you're figuring out how much your calves are worth you never you never account for the depression depreciation of the cow year to year so when that cow is seven years old you know if she's worth less than when she was six years old you if you're keeping good books you actually should take the how much your calf was worth you should minus that depreciation of the cow so you actually can make your cows worth a lot more by selling them all when they're five or six instead of keeping them until they they're not productive anymore um 
But yeah, most ranchers would never consider that. But that's what we're talking about with appreciation and depreciation of cows. I tried to explain this to, to someone once locally and they said, oh, I, I totally get that. He was, I just went and bought a semi-load of five and six-year-old cows. So I have some really good cow, calving cows. <laughs> I don't think it's the opposite of what I meant. <laughs> you bought those cows. You could not have bought them more expensive in their whole life cycle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've got my, I've got my couple acres out back with a, a few head of cows. So, I mean, I, I really have some legitimate experience to speak from. So people take me real serious. <laughs> Nobody should take what I say about farming serious. I'm just somebody that dabbles in it, but I have enough free time and all the airplanes flying around and nights in hotels. I just, you know, eat it up in books and podcasts and, and all that stuff. But it is, it's just inter interesting and new ways to look at things. Heck yeah. Taylor, do you have just a moment to explain an aerodynamics question? Yes. I've been waiting to explain this. Okay. To you. We got it. We got to do this. We got to get this in because I was telling Taylor about what well, we talked about it on the podcast actually is what, what made you, I think originally <laughs> message me and say, Oh, I, I have the answer. I know. Wasn't it when I was talking about the wind and running side by side, right? So I was, we mentioned, uh, you know, we talked about Nolan getting blown over in the wind. Nolan that got blown over in the wind is the same Nolan that's been stuck in Valentine, Nebraska for like four days in the truck stop. Poor Nolan. Same time of year too. Anyway, we were given some tips about how to handle the wind, extreme wind, you know, 60, 60 to 80, 90 mile an hour wind in your semi. And it's by traveling side by side down the freeway. I mentioned that that's like a miracle that it, it takes all the danger out of the wind. And Taylor said, there's an actual explanation for that. And I said, oh, you got to save it for the podcast because I want you to explain this. So here we are. All right, Taylor. It's no different than, you know, two race cars drafting. Mm. In fact, look at this. I even have a race car I can explain. So if you <laughs> are, if you, if, we'll, we'll do the side-by-side -side method. So if it's just you traveling north from Chodo and the wind is blowing one bajillion miles an hour. <laughs> okay. We'll use more round numbers. Yeah. So when the wind's blowing on the side of your truck, there's also an equal and opposite force. That wind creates a suction on the other side of your truck. So the forces you feel is the wind blowing against, let's say it's coming in your driver door, blowing against the driver door, but you're also feeling the force of the wind sucking on your passenger side of your trailer. Because of like the vortex thing it creates, is it? Exactly. That vortex is, is, is pulling against you. So when you pull another truck up beside you, you've now doubled the mass of your trucks. If you're close enough, right? You have twice. So the driver in the left truck is only feeling half the force he was before. I don't know the exact numbers. If it's not half, nobody shoot me, but he's feeling a portion. He's only feeling the portion that's pushing. And the other driver is only feeling the portion that's pulling, which it, well, let's say it's half of what it was. So it seems much less extreme. So you're so you're saying that when you feel wind, when you're getting wind blasting on you, there's the actual push of the wind on you, but there's also a pull that's trying to not only blow you over, but pull you over. Yeah. The, with the truck, especially with the, with the sharp corners and the, and the vortices. And that's a lot of what we do on race cars is there's edges we want. We want the air to wrap around things and there's edges we want the air to shear off. If you start looking at your truck, there's a lot of things on your truck like those little flares on the end of the cab, you know, for driving straight. That's, tr that's, that's the manufacturer's attempt to shear the air off of the back of that cab and not have it reconnect until the side of your trailer versus that air wrapping around the back of your cab and pushing on the front of your trailer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of the aerodynamic stuff we do. And that's what I've actually seen. We have this program called, we don't, there's companies that have it. You can outsource as CFD is computational fluid dynamics, which is it's aerodynamics, but it's in a computer generated model. And I've seen a CFD shot a slice through of a semi before on a, a company. And that's what they were working on this crazy new truck and trailer that was way more aero efficient. And it was showing all the hot, the hot pressure spots, like, like in front of the front tires, you notice those, a lot of trailers now will run like the side guards. That's, that's mainly it's the, yeah, to keep cars from going underneath, but it's a lot to keep air out from us out from in front of the rear tires. Same with the sides on your truck and stuff like that, or the chin spoilers. You're just, you're trying to get the air to slip out and slip down the sides and not push against anything going down the road. I don't think that anybody knows that. I don't think anybody knows that you have wind pushing on you and pulling you over at the same time. 
that just when you told me that, I was like, what? So by having that other truck there, you eliminate literally half. And that's how it feels. You're like, I feel like I'm in a 30 mile an hour wind instead of a 60 or 70 for both what, of you. What I, what I think about a little bit, it's like, it's a, it's a vortice, right? So it's not like on you, it's a pull, but I, I'm sure people have all heard the thing. I've never done it, but I, I've heard you can like sometimes with a motorcycle pull right up behind a semi and almost shut the motorcycle off and it'll pull you along. And I think that's because that the way that air spins off the back of the truck, you know, there's a pushing force back there. There's a pull, there's a push. I don't understand it all, but when you go on the textbooks, yeah, there's definitely, it's not just a pushing against force. There's a pulling force as well. Huh. Dude, I love that. And now, now that I know it's like, I can walk around the truck stop and be like, let me, <laughs> let me teach you. So I love that, man. That so when two race cars are drafting, that's usually two guys on the same team or two drivers on the same team. Yeah, generally. Who decides who gets to take advantage of it the most? I don't think there's usually a decision. It's whoever's in front and that other guy's got to pass them. I think that's, it's generally, I don't know, situational game. You might, you might choose to be the guy in second place and you don't want to make your pass to the last lap, right? So that nobody else can pass you back. It's a, there's actually, we have a type of racing called super speedway racing. What these big tracks where you're pretty much just wide open all the time. And that's, that whole game is just the strategy of when to pull out and pass and get in drafting lines and which drafting line is faster and more efficient and, and stuff like that. It's a, it's pretty fun once you understand it on, on how, knowing what those guys are thinking about when they're running. So is the driver doing a lot of thinking and controlling that or, or you as the crew chief, are you managing the drafting at all as a, your position as a crew chief? The driver does most of it. His spotter, which I can actually see more than me, which is up on top of the grandstands, really helps him in his ears, give him the information so he can make decisions. He might say the line behind you is coming fast. You need to pull out and get in that line because that line has the momentum right now. He's just trying to give the pertinent information. And I'm, tr- I'm feeding the spotter a lot of information on, on a separate microphone in his other ear. He's trying to feed them a lot of information so they can make those decisions. Oh, wow. It'd be fun to it'd be fun to experience you in the wild <laughs> doing all that. Yeah, you can actually scan me during a race. You can scan my whole team and listen to everything we say. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, mm. text me. Leo will send you a link. Anybody can do it. It's on, an, on the NASCAR app. You can do it with any team. Oh, okay. Just pop it up, listen to it while you're trucking. That's cool, man. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably get like, I'll get like scooped up in the moment. Next thing I know, I'll be driving 85 down the freeway and there goes all my fuel mileage. <laughs> Yeah, I have I have some some continuing continuing education opportunities out in Charlotte. So I've been looking at doing those. If I do, I'm going to have to come out and see your place. Absolutely. You are more than invited. Everybody's invited. Yeah. Come see it. Give you a tour of the race shop. North Carolina is a cool place. It's got a lot of diversity. And that's what I like to show everybody. We got mountains, beaches, agriculture, race cars, lots of good stuff. <laughs> I'm probably more interested in seeing the shop. Luke probably just wants to go see the farm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, we really appreciate the time, Taylor. Take care and, and we'll catch you again. All right, thanks, guys. Yep. See you. Let's wrap it up. Yeah, that was good. Steady at the Wheel podcast at Gmail for email. Stay at the Wheel podcast Instagram. Wild Wild West on YouTube and Shamanush on Instagram. All right.